action fans, and thanks for joining us for another edition of All 90s Action All The Time. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Murphy, and on today's episode, we continue our 90s Seagal season with Out For Justice. As always, to help me delve into this film, we have my co-host, a man who's never been known to be outmanned or outgunned, very much the mason storm of this podcast. It's Mr. Kyle Hintz. Hi, Kyle. Thank you. That is, that's the best intro. <laughs> Thank you. That's no problem. And later on this season, we will also be joined by Mr. Craig Dryheim. But you will have to wait for his debut. Anyway, we should probably get on to today's film, 1991's Out for Justice. So celebrating its 30th anniversary this year which was directed by John Flynn, a director who made his reputation in the 70s with kind of hard-boiled <laughs> crime action flicks, the, the Outfit, which was a Parker novel adaptation, and the Vietnam revenge film Rolling Thunder, both of which are supposed to be pretty decent, but I've not, I've not actually seen them, so I can, cannot confirm nor deny. Whether I, can, that, you I, can. Can highly, I can highly recommend uh, Rolling Thunder. Okay. It's wonderful. Excellent. Excellent. Also, he he'd previously worked with another big action star in his previous film um, because he directed the lesser known Sylvester Stallone film Lock Up uh, in 1989, Ooh. two years prior to this. And as well as that, the script was written by uh, R. Lance Hill under his pseudonym David Lee Henry and his previous credits had included the Jeff Bridges neo-noir 8 million ways to die and that Patrick Swayze classic Roadhouse so you know that this is <laughs> high quality dialogue coming your way the movie currently holds a 6.1 on IMDb 23% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 22 reviews, 38% on Metacritic based on 12 reviews, and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. Although, I should also point out that Chief Seagalologist Outlaw Vern, along with many Seagal fans, considered this to be his best film that he's ever made. I would, I have to echo that. Well, you've, 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 uh, you've given a spoiler, uh, Kyle. Like <laughs> at the end of this season, we're, we're going to do our best and worst of like our favorite and least favorite 90s Seagal film. But now you've, you've jumped the gun and you've I told know. the audience what your favorite one is now. So, well, to be fair, <laughs> I haven't seen most of the late 90s stuff in forever so i may change my mind oh yeah i'm sure fire down below is gonna jump <laughs> <laughs> jump to the top of the queue uh, <laughs> you never know yeah you, you, you never know you never know um i don't know why i'm picking on fire down below there is uh, a couple of worse entries uh, that we're going to cover but i won't spoil what my least favorite is or or what my, <laughs> my favorite is before we do talk about the movie and um there will be i should i've not given it in the last two episodes so i should really do it this time i should give a big spoiler review a spoiler mm. review not a spoiler review a spoiler warning oh, even word. in that yes this podcast does plot summaries of the movies that we cover so therefore if you've not seen the movie um, go check it out and then come back and, and then listen to this because we're going to talk about the movie yeah, and, we're yeah. in depth so like uh, yeah if you want to avoid that um, just just come back just watch it come back and, and then listen 
also before we you know dig into the plot of the movie this is i should say a little bit of a departure for seagal you know people often say that seagal always makes the same movie but this one is a little bit different you know it's got a little bit of a a a grittier tone and look there's plenty of seagal silliness that we'll get to but it is a little bit different and obviously you know the director has a kind of hard-boiled background it's given a little bit more of a kind of washed out look uh, the cinematography was done by a guy called Rick Wheat, who had previously done cinematography on the likes of Cobra and uh, Forty Eight Hours, which kind of makes sense. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit different to your average Seagal film. Yeah, it's not quite as slick as some of the other ones feel. Yeah, it's a it's a bit more kind of rough rough around the edges, and um, I think you know uh, some people in in reviews have have said that. They, you know, it's it's almost like they're kind of his take on like a kind of Scorsese picture, you know, because even uh, William Forsyth, who, you know, plays the main villain, uh, Richie Madano, he said the original script for the, the movie um, before they kind of added lots of the kind of Seagal action scenes and, and stuff like that had a kind of Mean Streets vibe uh, to it. That's, that's why I read an interview with him that, that said and- that. And then they just drained that vibe out of the script. <laughs> I suppose, like in the kind of barest bones of, like you know, yeah, like friends turned enemies in a New York neighborhood. You know, in the and the the, the madness of uh, of William Forsythe's character, kind of, and yeah, and all the Italian stuff. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. So yeah, we I suppose at this point we should get into the into the plot of the movie. But before before we start that, um, as the movie opens, it opens in absurdly pretentious fashion for an action movie with a quote from Arthur Miller, which uh, uh, I wrote down. Says, uh, <laughs> 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 while the while to the strangers eye on the street was no different. Uh, one street was no different from another. We all knew where our neighborhood, uh, people can't see me doing the little quotation mark fingers, so that's in quotation marks, somehow ended. Beyond that, a person was dot, 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 a stranger, Arthur Miller. Uh, play, and then it says, like, play right, raised in Brooklyn. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't expect yeah. that from a Seagal movie, do you? Don't expect that to uh, make sense by the end of it. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, not at all. Uh, I suppose it, it there's something to do with, yeah, being all about this this one neighborhood and everybody's connected. And yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't add up to the hill of beans, really. I think they just wanted to stick an Arthur Miller quote in there to kind of give full full profundity full credibility you know make them work a bit more serious than they are uh maybe uh, although i do get the sense that probably there was different visions for this film like based on john flynn the director's previous back catalog do mm. you would assume that he was looking to do something a bit more hard-boiled and gritty which he kind of gets and then probably Seagal pushed the movie in a certain direction which he had the power to do as one of the producers on the movie 
Yeah. Well, yeah, that and based on what you were just saying about the script supposedly being uh, more like Mean Streets, then it would it would make sense because there's those hints of all this backstory, but it doesn't really become front and center. Yeah. Well, apparently there was some kind of butting heads with the studio as well. So the film was originally titled uh, The Price of Our Blood, uh, which was actually this <laughs> one of the few things that Seagal and the director de- agreed on, that they both liked this title, The Price of Our Blood. And uh, the, <laughs> okay. studio, the studio didn't like the title and wanted to stick with um, the kind of three-word formula that had been such a hit in um, Seagal's other pictures. Uh, so yes, so they changed the title for Out for Justice, and John Finn's original cut of the movie was longer, substantially longer. Okay. It was about just over, it was about two hours, so it's like half an hour longer. So apparently, you do get more uh, kind of character detail and uh, background, and yeah, basically more plot. It's a, a, a less streamlined movie this is a very streamlined movie that's cool well yeah i would i would watch that extra 30 minutes this for this movie i think yeah so yeah apparently you do get more um more on like richie and stuff and that was kind of one of the other interesting things that came out of uh looking into this movie about researching this movie but was apparently seagal got them to cut a few scenes from the movie because he was basically scared that William Forsyth was stealing his thunder and wanted less William Forsyth. Oh wow! Well, that's I mean totally understandable because William Forsyth is an actor and Steven Seagal. Steven Seagal. <laughs> yes, yes. The, like I, I have to say, like you can you can make fun of this movie in many ways. But Williams Forsyth's performance is objectively great. Yes, it's it's fucking insane. I it's one of those performances like because he reminds me of a Gary Busey kind of guy or one of those guys that's you know kind of gone nuts. It's one of those performances where you're like, is this where it happened? Is this where it started? Did you play this character and then just start to fucking lose it? I I, I very much know what you mean. Like I I mean William Forsyth often plays characters like this. And I mean like he is equally intense in like uh when he's playing that sheriff character in the Devil's Region. Oh yes. That is yeah. a fucking performance in that movie as well. It's underrated. And I think that's like his last really great acting role. Yeah, that's like his last that's the last kind of tour de force performance that I saw by him, I have to say. Yeah. But yeah, he's he's really great in that. Um, yeah, we we should probably get into what happens what happens in the, this movie and and what happens to these characters. So the movie, um, or as as all Sakal <laughs> movies um, at this point anyway, has like a really strong opening scene. Uh, we've had a couple of you know both Hard to Kill and Mark for Death had uh, strong opening scenes. We obviously had the, the liquor store fight in Hard to Kill, and then we had the chasing Danny Trail through Columbia uh, thing, and then the drug deal going wrong in Mark for Death. And then this one, so Seagal's character, Detective Gino Fellino, <laughs> there's, there's lots of very on-the-nose Italian-American names in this um, 
we'll get into that more. Um, and his partner Bobby Lupo, yeah, it's it's that's yeah that type of film. Um, they're sitting in a van. They're obviously staking something out. There is some sort of operation going on, some sort of bus going on. But basically, Segal spots um, a pimp uh, beating up uh, a, a prostitute, and he is incensed by this. And he basically jumps the gun on this bust because he is so it's you know just angry about this this woman being beat up in quite an unflinchingly brutal scene. You know, like the act. I don't know who the actor is who, who played the pimp, but uh, he really plays a shithead quite well, convincingly anyway. And he really, it's an intense scene. And there's one point he just like full-blown punches this woman in the face. It looks absolutely really horrible and ugly. But then Seagal comes onto the scene and it, it becomes much more of a just kind of silly action thing where he's like, hey, stop picking on that woman. You're like, slapping around women you know why not try slapping around me and then of course that guy gets gets beaten up he gets his head put through a car window and then he gets backdropped through the windshield of, of a car so we're all only like five minutes <laughs> into this movie and we've already had two glass breaks so that's classic Seagal yes it is and then we get the best maybe the best Steven Seagal title card ever Right oh, after he puts him is, through the windshield. This yes. is, yeah, yeah. This, right after the, he puts him through the windshield, and we see through like the car window or whatever, Seagal freeze frame, Steven Seagal. And then the title of the movie is like, ah. And then, yeah, the title of the movie uh, just kind of with a clanking sound comes down out for justice. And I love that this movie on the posters and on the DVD cover, the they got the trick that the other movies missed, you know, like Hard to Kill, it should have had an is there. Yeah, and, and Mark for Death, yeah, probably probably the same, but an Out for Justice, it does. On the DVD cover, it does have the is. Steven Seagal is Out for Justice. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. So so they, they got this one. Yeah, it's it, you know, like I, I would agree it's the best title card of his movies. But I mean, it's really good. <laughs> if you're if you're an action fan and you're not fist pumping at that, like I don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah, you're dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> That's the official opinion of this podcast. What's the beginning in this movie? And if you're not jumping out of your seat, then you're dead inside. That, that's just, that's yeah. what's happening. Um. So yeah, after that, the that's basically what main plot of the movie begins where the main villain Richie Madano played by William Forsythe uh, he shoots Steven Seagal's partner or should I say Detective Gino Fellino's partner uh, Bobby uh, in the street in front of his wife and kids in absolutely brutal fashion He, mm. I, I didn't count how many times he shot him but he shot him a lot and then he spit on him, and then he threw a Polaroid picture on him <laughs> that will be important later. Yes, which will be an important plot point later. But at this point, not so much. Not so much. Um, and, th and then like, we get a very brief scene of uh, Seagal being a responsible parent 
where he asks his son, has he done his homework? Like, basically, his son says, oh, can we go out and play catch? And Seagal says, have you done your homework? And the son says, no. And, and Seagal goes, okay, go and get your ball and bat then. Responsible parenting from Seagal there. Yeah, fuck Always. homework. <laughs> <laughs> Baseball's more important than homework. Well, and we must uh, we must note that now Steven Seagal is in this great uh, sleeveless shirt that's going to keep coming back up. Yes, it is. Oh, we should also note that uh, in this opening scene, Seagal speaks in his normal speaking voice. Not something he does throughout mm. the movie, but we'll get to that in a minute. The, the next kind of point is like, just again, we have the, the you know, we've already seen Richie uh, being a maniac uh, by shooting Bobby se- like several, several times and then spitting on him. Um, so we've already established, oh, this guy's evil, this guy's the main villain. But then we see him getting away in a car with his thugs and he... he just lights up a, a crack pipe. He, he takes a, a post-assassination uh, <laughs> head of the crack pipe, and then they get stuck in traffic. And there, there is a woman who starts shouting at him, and he just, he just gets out of the car, grabs the woman by the hair, shoots her in the face, and then jumps back in the car with his guns. Uh, just so you know, one hundred percent. This guy is evil with a capital E. Yes, he is. He's totally fucking lost it. And not only that, we have all of his goons to our, our let us know that he shouldn't have just killed Bobby Lupo. He shouldn't have killed this woman that he's like, even they are shocked by his evilness. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know. I know. And like, even, yeah, even his, like, he's a, an interesting villain because like, he's not, he's not got a plan. There is no plan for world domination. There is no plan to take over the neighborhood. There's no plan for anything. He just wants to kill Bobby and then just go on a murder rampage and <laughs> believes that he's going to die at the end of the day because this movie basically takes course over like 24 hours. Which is weird because there is a montage a little bit later that feels like a passage of time. And then yes. you find out again that it's still just the same day. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yes, it, it, it does. There, Yeah, there is an investigation montage later on that you think like, oh, all right, oh, they've been gathering evidence for a few. No, all right, that, that happened over the course of an hour or something. I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's all a bit confusing. Um, but yeah, his, even like his goons seem scared of him. Like, because in the kind of first uh, scene that we see uh, Richie, He's like takes out a bunch of money and, and says like, oh, if you can get to the end of the night, um, you can you can have this money. And one of the goons says, you know, well, how long can the night be? Turns out very, very, very long. Very long. <laughs> and, and um, one of these goons we should mention, you mentioned the liquor store uh, robbery. And that is Hill. true. Yes. The leader of that gang is now a member of uh, William Forsyth's gang. So he's moving on up. Yes, that that is that is very true. So Robert Lasardo, he um, who we last saw getting his ankle snapped off in a liquor store, is back in this movie as a, as an, another thug, who is well, he he's not going to make it uh, to to the end. He's not. 
but uh you make you make it further he makes it much further than he did in in hard to kill so you know progressing really you know it's a, a step <laughs> up yeah so now we have to address what various things about Segal uh, because we get a scene at the crime scene where oh. he arrives in the crime scene in the the cutoff shirt that we had previously seen him, uh, uh, but also now with a beret as well. Uh-huh. And at this point, we introduce the fact that Steven Seagal tries out an accent oh, uh, yes. for about half the movie, and it is the most badabing Brooklyn parody accent you've ever heard. And it's it's made even funnier by the fact that in the first couple of scenes you see him, he's ju- he's just using his normal voice. He's not doing an accent. It's not until the crime scene. I didn't notice it, the accent coming in until the crime scene scene. I feel like he. I noticed it before, but it's it's hard to tell because, like you say, he's doing it half the time because his accent is very much connected to what, like it's more like connected to phrases because he's always like this guy over here and that guy over there and like he goes in and out of it a lot yeah he does that is true because it can be he's not even consistent in the same sentence you know sometimes he's talking in his normal voice for a bit and then he's suddenly talking about richie and you're like what (laughs) (laughs) like yeah you don't know about the neighborhood and then he just goes back to his normal voice and you're like what there's no there's no tracking this like what, what uh, um yeah it's a futile <laughs> enterprise and it's and it's even more funny too because there's also new york actors in this movie <laughs> who are just from new york yes yeah <laughs> apparently i was in that same william Forsyth thing where he was talking about the, the mean streets vibe of the, the early drafts uh apparently he had a conversation with Segal where Segal was saying to him he needed to work on his Brooklyn accent. And Forsyth was like, yeah, you need to work on it. <laughs> and that's perfect Segal fashion. I can just imagine him <laughs> telling other people they need to work on their acting and shit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, dear. There's there's many there's many fun, fun moments like that. And obviously, because, I mean, this is... Uh, kind of part action movie, um, part kind of mob drama, and we've got the kind of pretty much the most stereotypical bunch of New York mafiosos um, <laughs> that you can you can see on screen. Yes, and interestingly enough, they're not even like the villain. Like they're supposedly involved with William Forsythe, but then you kind of find out not at all, and they just want to kill him too, basically. So yes, it's suggested that well that's the other thing. Like Richie isn't like the big bad. It's suggested that he's essentially a mafia henchman. He's just like kind of one of the goons and he's gone off the rails. So he's not even like a kind of big boss figure because like in the scene basically the next scene we get Segal visiting one of the big boss figures a guy called Don Vitrio who yeah they, they have a conversation and Don Vitrio basically says that it's like bad PR for them so like they want him wiped out as much as Gino wants him wiped out 
So yeah, everybody's gunning for Richie. The police says Gino in his one man crusade and the mob are out to get him as well. Which makes it all the more interesting that like it takes them that long to find this guy. Because <laughs> he's not a he's not a savvy criminal. <laughs> he's just running around like a maniac the whole time. Yeah. No, absolutely. He's just on a rampage the, the whole time, uh, killing people in plain, plain view, plain sight. And uh, no, you think... And he's obviously just roaming around this one neighborhood. So you, you honestly think that it would the kind of net would have closed in on them uh, a bit quicker than it, it does in the movie but no oh I, I should mention as well one thing that didn't entertain me in the Don Vitru uh, scene that is just kind of like a random moment but it just it's just one of the many absurdities of this movie there is a character called Sammy who he meets mm. at the front door of Don Vitru's uh, restaurant and Sammy says to Steven Seagal Hey, you still hold, combing your hair like a girl, and that would be kind of one of those dickhead lines that are kind of like, ah, oh, you know, like this obviously shows the character is a bit of a dickhead, and um, you know, maybe he'll get beaten up la- later on. But the line just doesn't make any sense because the character Sammy has his hair gelled back in the exact same way as Seagal. It just it's like he's insulting himself. <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about that. I like that it's one of the few uh, ones that Seagal doesn't retort. He just kind of keeps walking, surprisingly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's he's just like too busy. He's on his uh, path of vengeance at, at that time. And, you know, like he, he stops his path of vengeance. He has a, a bit of many detours on his path of vengeance. Um, but in that opportunity to say a one-liner, he he casually declines and, and just gets on <laughs> with his business. So, um, yeah, yeah. Usually you would expect a kind of smart-ass uh, retort from Seagal, but no, he just no. Uh, lets that one lie. So he, he actually was the bigger man that time. One of the very few times you see that on screen. <laughs> the only time. Possibly the only time, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Don Vitrio Vitrio as well in this scene actually says the original title, The the Price of Our Blood. Yeah, yeah, he does. does. Because I read the thing about The Price of Our Blood, it it stuck out in my mind. Okay. Well, and also, so we do get um, Seagal speaking Italian, or at least what's supposed to be Italian, in this sit-down with Don Vitrio, which is pretty great. It's another moment of, like, Seagal egoism trying to show off his language skills oh yeah no there's <laughs> you got you got to love a bit of that you know where Seagal has to show off his, his many his many skills it's like oh have i told you i can do acupuncture let me show you on screen oh do you know <laughs> that i speak a little bit of italian spanish chinese japanese yeah we know we know students it's very impressive we're all very impressed. He's a man of just many cultures. He is indeed. This is kind of off topic, but I recently watched one of his direct-to-video efforts, um, Urban Justice, and one of the, the cringiest elements of that is whenever he's interacting with a black character, he starts oh. Im- imitating that that kind of lingo. Yes. And he does that in Half Past Dead as well, and it's just like... It's it's like he it's like there's like a kind of osmosis thing where he has to 
interact with any other culture in the exact same way as that culture and it just i mean it comes off as it's, incredibly cringy and, and terrible but it's oh i don't i don't know why i mean again it might just be the, the egotism thing of like oh i can i can it, uh, fit in with any culture i am a worldly man and i can just fit in right in there yeah it's it's weird it's also it's all over uh steven seagal law man that's the best part of that show is the same thing. Oh yeah. It's, when he's, he's talking to all the, all the, um, I, I, again, it kind of shows it weirdly for such a stupid show. It kind of shows the injustice of the, the American justice system of like, it tends to yeah. be young black male. It's almost entirely young black males that they arrest on these, the many kind of drug busts and stuff that they do uh, throughout the show. And that, yeah. <laughs> it really does it's pretty depressing yeah, it yeah. shows shows the bad american law enforcement and just steven seagal's ridiculousness anyway back to cheerier <laughs> shores and uh, back, back to this movie um because like at, at this point we get the most absurd element of the movie is coming up when seagal is, is driving along he sees another car that uh and oh, yes. the yeah, the driver uh, throws a black bag out of his window and Seagal stops, pulls his car over, uh, inspects the black bag, sees it is moving, opens the black bag. And what's in the black bag? What's in a the little, black bag, Kyle? A little German Shepherd puppy. It's so sad. It's, so, it's such a nice little puppy. And, and yes. And then Seagal says, I hope to God I meet that guy again one day. <laughs> and you think... And you think like, oh, this is just like a, a kind of little fun moment where we show that Gino, despite all his violence, is essentially a good man. And this that's the only point of this scene. It's not. It's not. Mm. There's an entire subplot, which we'll get into. <laughs> but it's why there's a subplot, nobody knows. That I, I feel like this must have been something Seagal shoehorned in of being like, well, I'm an animal lover and I want to show that as well. It's got to be. Because, yeah, when you think about it in the context of the whole narrative and him being uh, relentlessly driven to, to uh, justice, this is not important <laughs> to anything. <laughs> not at all. We do get quite a cool scene uh, coming up next, though, because we just get, like, Seagal cruising around town looking for Richie to the soundtrack of No Sleep Till Brooklyn. Yes. It's, yeah. That must have been a big hit at the time. That feels like a very, uh, we've got to capitalize on the moment song choice. Yeah, I feel... I mean, it works. I mean, it does work. You know, like, I, a little bit of Beastie Boys, I'm not... I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That's, 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 that's it goes a long thing way for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, for sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to crap on that decision. You know, like um, Beastie Boys on your soundtrack, cool. Um, yeah, like the, but again, like he has these kind of detours from his path of vengeance that are a bit weird. You know, like he he uh, pulls over. Um, talks to a guy, yes. uh, buys a six pack of seltzer from him because <laughs> yes. if you're on the path of vengeance, you gotta keep yourself hydrated. Yes, um, it feels it feels like what we the tangent we were just talking about though. It does feel like um, these little detours are just for Seagal to move in and out of other little worlds and show how like 
uh, cool he is that he can kind of blend in everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then also we get an utterly bizarre moment where a prostitute propositions him uh, uh, by the side of the road and um, he just finds it hilarious. Like, really, really hilarious. That's just because he's that virile, Scott. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's comical to him because women are throwing themselves at him all day. Ah, uh, yes. As we've previously discussed in <laughs> Mark for Death, where the professor of whatever she was the professor of just instantly fell in love with him. Yeah, it's a tough life. It's, it's hard. It's, it's hard for the gay. Oh dear. But um we he does eventually, after all this fucking about um laughing about hookers and uh you know trying to get them, you know, like homeless guys in on the joke and uh, buying a six pack of seltzer and, and all that. Um he does he does finally spot Richie in a car and then we get a quite a fun car chase. And I feel like Again, this kind of notifies the difference from his last couple of movies because the the car chase in Mark for Death is like just this kind of ridiculous action movie car chase, very early 90s. And you can kind of sense, even though it is equally ridiculous, you can kind of sense that the director is going for a, a kind of slightly grittier kind of French connection style car chase in this movie. It's not like on the on the sidewalk, people diving out the way, you know, like busting over various things. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's pretty gritty. And especially with uh, Steven Seagal driving sort of under this, he's like under this bridge that has these uh, support beam, like concrete beams or whatever, but like little, it's, I guess they're little pieces of sidewalk, but he's just yeah. going over like, a ridiculous amount of bumps and destroying the shocks of this car. Yeah, I mean, by the end of this, I mean, by the end of that, you know, the car really shouldn't be going anywhere. But it's Seagal's car, so, you know, it is. Yeah. because <laughs> unstoppable. The car, the, 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 the car is also extra virile. So, um, you know, it can, <laughs> it can just go, it can plow through the, those. Yeah, because it, it goes under this bridge for like a, an elevated train and, and yeah, just bouncing off these kind of pavement bits. Uh, but it, it continues on its way. Oh, but this is uh, one of our first really good fight scenes. There is a bunch of like, mm. as much as we're making fun of this movie and its various absurdities, uh, there is some very good fight scenes in this movie. And one of them is coming up, uh, basically Richie and the guys like they pull over the car and they run into a butcher shop. And because like basically every second person in this neighborhood is a mafioso <laughs> or associated to the mafia, you know, realism, like, yeah, they go in, they collect some bullets from this butcher. And then they like, basically Richie says to the guys in the butcher shop, you know, hang up on a meat hook, you know, like kill this guy. And then we get a classic, a classic Seagal uh, action sequence. Do you want to, do you want to break this one down? I'll give you this one. Um, we just get a great butcher fight. So these guys just wait to ambush Seagal and we get uh, a lot of meat cleavers in the hand. Um, yeah. You could break it down beat by beat. Well, I do love that. <laughs> 
So there is a guy standing waiting to surprise Seagal with a meat cleaver. And he has no success in this because he does not surprise Seagal. Uh, Seagal immediately sidesteps him and puts the meat cleaver that he has in his hand into his leg. And then he takes that same meat cleaver, like after beating up another guy, he takes the meat cleaver out of one guy's leg and implants it in another guy's hand. And uh, it's... It's, it's top drawer entertainment. Almost as top drawer entertainment as the next guy that he beats up where he's explaining to the guy, you know, like, hey, you know, like, Richie's a bad guy. You know, like, my yes. friends don't like him. Your friends don't like him. I think you're hanging out with the wrong people and then proceeds to bat him over the head with a big <laughs> sausage. <laughs> Which is not a metaphor yes. for anything. That is literally what happened. No. They're in the boot shop. He bats them over the head with a big sausage. It's <laughs> it's pretty priceless. <sighs> it's also amazing that I guess they're underworld figures, but I don't feel like Richie's gang is that large. No. But they're loyal to him enough that he can literally run in and say, hey, kill this guy, and then run out the other door and leave and knows that they're going to do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But But that's the neighborhood. That's that, is, the that is the neighborhood. We should also mention this also has a kind of classic. I mean, apart from that, where he's uh, just hits the guy with the sausage, it has another uh, classic Seagal being a smarmy asshole moment where he's like talking to the, the butcher guy who pulls a gun on him and he just kind of talks him down and just being like, why, why you gotta, why you gotta be a bad guy like that? What do you, why, why don't you be a good guy? And then, like, just twists his wrist off and, you know, like, uh, takes a gun off him and just casually strolls out the shop because the gal is that much of a badass. Yes, he is. Any Anyone else would have gotten shot because that guy had ample opportunity. <laughs> I think there is... There are, there, there's a scene coming up as well where Richie visits, like, well, not a, a, a girlfriend, but, like, a, a woman who we seem to believe was a prostitute but now isn't a prostitute and it doesn't really further the plot any but it is interesting to mention because the actress who plays this character is Juliana Margailas in her debut film role and then of course she would go on to fame in the likes of ER uh, and The Good Wife so I'm sure this is high, still high up on her um, CV, you know, but, you know, ER. Some of her best work, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's right up there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, and, and then just not long after that, we get possibly the greatest fight scene in Seagal's career. The, the bar, the bar. Yes, yes. Um, so this there is a bar that is owned by Richie's brother, uh, Vinny. Now, um, yeah, Vinny Madano is played by Anthony DeSando. And he's already been roughed up a bit. He's already been visited by the mob because, um, yeah, they want Richie, as we've said, they want Richie as well. So... They're kind of looking for Richie like everybody is and think that Vinny knows where he is. And Vinny denies any knowledge of uh, of Richie, of, of, of knowing any his whereabouts at all. 
Um, so, but they kind of threaten him and say they've come back. But then Seagal uh, comes in and he also demands to know where Richie is and believes that Vinny knows his whereabouts. Uh, but apparently Vinny does not, whether whether he does or not, is is unclear whether he's just trying to be loyal to his brother. But we kind of assume that he actually doesn't. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, if the butcher shop had a little bit of classic Seagal being <laughs> a smarmy asshole, well, oh boy, this scene this is... is just full of it. It's the ultimate smarminess. He throws a guy. As we go into this back and forth of anybody, has anybody seen Richie who killed Bobby Lupo? Why did he kill him? He is throwing these goons around so casually, throwing a guy in a phone booth. Like, I feel like he slaps another guy. He kicks a guy off a stool. Yes. He goes behind the bar and just starts tossing everybody's drinks all over the place. And one of the funniest Seagal being a smarmy asshole is like after he like knocks the drinks off the top of the bar, he just grabs a hot dog and goes, "Who hot? whose hot dog is this? And then just throws it at some <laughs> random people. Oh, he's such an asshole. He is. He is. And then after that, he starts talking to the bartender and just bullies the shit out of him and just notices the boxing gloves behind the bar. And it's like, whose boxing gloves are these? I see lots of boxing memorabilia, lots of boxing gloves. Um, who's the boxer? And then the bartender's like, I'm the boxer. And he's like, oh, so you're a tough guy then? Are you like, um, yeah. And the bartender's like, yeah, tough enough, you know? Um, and then, of course, uh, Seagal punches out that guy. Yes. And then, and Sammy is there. Sammy combing your hair like a girl, Sammy, is at the Yeah, bar. that's what we should call him, combing your hair like a girl, Sammy. <laughs> and he is throughout this constantly saying, oh, he's nothing without his gun and his badge, blah, blah, blah. So finally, yeah. Seagal drops the clip out of his gun, takes the one out of the chamber, you know, and says, there, I don't have my gun anymore. Here's my badge. This is your prize if you can take this badge from me. And Sammy offers these goons, what, $5,000 if they can take it from him? $5,000, yeah. And then we get that great line from um, the really biker-looking goon with this scraggly beard who says, uh, Seagal comes up to him and says something, and that guy says, like, the only thing standing in your way is fear and common sense. And then Seagal uh, hits him in the face with a pool ball wrapped in a bar rag. <laughs> breaks his nose. And uh, breaks several of his teeth. Which he's just oh, like, yes. oh, you, you, you broke my teeth. Like he's like picking his teeth up off the pool table. Just say, you broke my teeth. Just so the that's so the audience knows what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> there there's a bunch of that as well because there's another moment in the fight scene where a guy jumps up on a pool table and tries to attack him, uh, and he kicks him in the balls, and he's like, oh my balls, my balls. I feel like that's another Steven Seagal thing. Like, let him, I feel like he's got to be there. Like, tell the audience how much it hurts when I hit you. Oh, yeah, for, for <laughs> sure, for sure. And and then we also get in, in this sequence, in the many, many fights in this sequence where you're just uh, throwing people around. And the, the guy he bullies the most is, like, the guy he stuffs into a phone box. He does yes. that twice. So, yeah. like, in his, like, first circuit of the bar, he just stuffs this random guy into a phone box. And then after he's fought, like, basically 
the whole bar. He stuffs that same guy back into the phone box again after he's only just escaped the phone box. And that guy's never, that's it. That guy never like uh, does anything in return. He never attacks him. He never says a line. He just gets rammed into a phone box a couple of times. Like he might have just been an actual guy just getting a drink there. You know, it's he does like there's no sense that he is one of the, the mafioso goons or whatever. He's just like, what? Why? What? I mean, but that again is just a thing where it's like you just, you're in the neighborhood. So you're fair game that is true um and we should mention as well in this fight scene there's a really cool moment uh where a guy character called sticks is kind of called upon by the gangsters they like (laughs) you know like he's obviously just sitting around waiting for fights waiting to be called on because he's sitting with his arms crossed being like just looking all broody and uh, yeah, so he's waiting for his big moment and is actually played by legendary martial artist uh, Dan Inosanto, who was one of uh, Bruce Lee's students and one of the only uh, certified uh, Jeet Kune Do uh, instructors. Um, so he is something of a martial arts legend. Presumably that was a kind of Seagal cast, uh, that one. And uh, yeah, he sticks and he's got two sticks and... Basically, Seagal fights with us. <laughs> That's how those nicknames work. And then Seagal breaks the poker in half, and they they fight. They do a kind of stick fight, and it's um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome, yeah. And it's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I presumably like between the two of them, between Seagal and Inosanto, they probably did the choreography for them, that themselves, and um, let's well done and it's kind of disappointing that sticks never comes back because he seems like the coolest goon out of all the goons yeah he is by far he has no lines but he is by far the most charismatic goon he just sits on his stool waiting for fights waiting for something <laughs> to go hey sticks get that guy and then he gets Camley. He, he doesn't rush Camley gets off his stool picks up his stick and gets to work <sighs> I like to think Sticks had good enough sense as this plot is getting more insane to just step away and not get killed by Seagal. That's that's a fair point. Yeah, Sticks might be the most sensible of uh, all the goons. He was like, and you know, he's the kind of character that you think as well that he's like a kind of a martial artist, and he might have a kind of sense of honor of being mm. like, well, he defeated me in a fight, and now I must go. Yeah, I think so. I think he's the only. He's definitely the only guy in this bar with any honor. <laughs> Oh, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the biker guy in particular does not learn his lesson, you know, does not learn his lesson in this movie at all. He just keeps thinking he's a real tough guy and just keeps getting his ass kicked by everyone. And he looks like a real biker. I don't know. He looks really grungy. there, There is a real kind of grizzled look to that guy that's like, yeah, he looks like he probably a hell's angel at, at some point you know not not just a kind of dressed up to look like a bank a, a banker a biker <laughs> <laughs> he just actually just walked up on set like that and they were like yep yep you're hired yeah, you'll do. you got the part <laughs> so then we get uh does he beat up sammy before he beats up Vinny, or it's vice versa yes he beats up he beats up sammy first and i i'm yeah i'm pretty sure he beats up sammy first 
um, after beating up the bar, he comes right, he pushes the guy into the phone box again, <laughs> he comes around to Sammy again, who's still bizarrely still threatening him pretty much in the in the same way, even after seeing people who he probably suspects are tougher than him get their asses handed to them. And uh, yet uh, Sammy still feels oddly confident in this situation. Well, he is a made guy, apparently. Oh, yeah, that, that is true. So therefore, he is one of Don Vitrio's men. So he's pretty confident that Segal, because he was part of the neighborhoods and kind of hung out with wise guys when he was younger, that he would follow the code and, and not hit him because he's a, a made man, which doesn't work out well for him. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Steven Seagal pulls another asshole move of kind of like, oh, okay, I'm going to walk away and then spin around 360 and punch you in the nose. Classic. Classic Seagal. <laughs> and then he starts picking on Vinny and uh, yeah, like uh, just, just beats him up, breaks his nose, Vinny tries to go for a gun, uh, slams his hand in the bar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and that's that's Vinny. That's Vinny Cook. And then we get the, my favorite, maybe my favorite part of this whole scene. We get one more shot after clearly Steven Seagal's beat everyone up. No one likes him and no one is giving any hint that they know where Richie is or that they will tell if they do know. Yeah. And we get like one final shot of him walking out the bar still going like, anybody seen Richie? I'm going to keep coming back. It's like, I don't think that that's going to get you anywhere. <laughs> no, he's, um, this, this is the thing throughout the movie. He's kind of, he's like the poster boy for police brutality. He's a great movie oh, character, yes. but if you transplanted this to real life in any way, you'd be like, this is the worst cop. Yes. I did get the, I did think that as I was watching it, it's like, there's probably a lot of cops that watched this movie and, imitated this and just ruined the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah because i mean like he is just i mean he does some other terrible shit coming up <laughs> yeah but his his mo is just i'm gonna strong arm and throw people around like there's a scene we'll get to later but there's parts where he's just going through people's like offices and literally just throwing papers around <laughs> as if that's like gonna get him somewhere and you're just like you're the worst detective ever <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the real that's the way to ingratiate yourself with people, you know. That people are are likely to give up information where you just fuck up their shit. I mean, but again, we you say that, but we don't know that we're not from the neighborhood. Yes, that is true. We don't understand. We are not from the neighborhood. And yeah, so I think this is a point where we get the investigation montage that you mentioned yes. that makes it feel like the film happens over a couple of days, but actually the investigation montage of people looking for Richie, various people looking for Richie, the police, Gino, the mob. Um, yeah. And we also apparently get... takes a place over like, a, like an hour or two. Yeah. Which is weird. And it's maybe it's stuff that they cut. Cause looking at it, it, a lot of it did seem like it was part of a scene, part of the same scene that they maybe just made into a montage like that raid mm -hmm. and stuff. But, um, but we do get to see a very young John Leguizamo get uh, slapped around for a second by William Forsythe. Yes. He does have a very small cameo um, as a character named uh, credited as Boyan Ali. <laughs> yeah. 
and you literally blink and you'll miss him. Yeah, you really have to look out for him. I mean, like, the main reason I was looking out for him was I have been reading uh, Vern's Sigalology book, and it's mentioned in the Out for Justice chapter. And I've watched Out for Justice a bunch of times, hadn't really noticed it. And uh, so I was looking out for that scene, and I was like, oh, yeah, I, oh, that is John Louis Yamo. That's, that's cool. <laughs> and he's gone. And and he's gone. And he's gone. Oh, talking about, you know, kind of known faces that are in this film, we should have mentioned that uh, the police captain, Seagal's police captain, is played by none other than Law and Order's Jerry Obark. Um, yes. Yeah, so, and, you know, obviously well known for playing uh, uh, policemen. I also remember him for his role in uh, Murder, She Wrote, fan, uh, the show I was a fan of as a kid. Yeah, he's a great uh, second string to Seagal. He gives it that kind of, he's just a perfect police lieutenant character. But he doesn't, he doesn't get as many good one-liners as some of the guys, like O'Malley, unfortunately. Yeah. Although, weirdly, I should... I want to mention this as well, right? So on the back of the DVD, it kind of it suggests that Jerry Obark is his is his partner, not his captain. Like this mm. on the back of the, the, the DVD, it basically says that uh, Brooklyn born and raised cop Gino Folino has seen many changes in the neighborhood. Uh, quotation marks. Yes. Um, one sad one is that boyhood adversary and criminal scum Richie. William Forsyth, has turned the local streets into a war zone. He's a mad dog unleashed, whose Gino is more than willing to send to an eternal obedience school. Who wrote this? Uh, but he and his world-weary partner, Jerry Obark, of TV's Law and Order, must catch Richie first, which suggests it's like That's a alive. buddy movie or something, which it's not. And then it ends with this line, which is genuinely amazing. With Seagal's remarkable Aikido skills, commanding center stage, out for justice, is out of sight. Yes, and that's actually true. That's the best review of the movie. <laughs> In that last uh, line, yeah, yeah, for, for sure, that, that's accurate. But that, the previous line about um, him and his world-weary partner, that's, I was like, yeah. have they watched the movie? Like, that's... The only true thing is the world weariness. Because I world weary because Jerry Obart characters are always world weary. Yeah, but he also he says the world weary cop line at some point. I can't remember the scene, but he does say, "I'm getting too old for this shit." Oh yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't remember the exact moment in the movie like you uh, where that is said, but yeah. Yeah, that's uh, weird. Classic. Well, typical DVD live. <laughs> typical B movie DVDs getting the plots wrong. I'm sure that happens in a bunch of uh, Seagal movies, you know. Uh, the, the DVDs yeah. don't add up. Well, all that's important is they mention the neighborhood once again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in quotation marks, as <laughs> always, you know, the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Coming up, we get another just like absurd scene in this movie where Richie is driving along with his with his goons well he's been driven by one of his goons and a couple other goons are in the 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 back of the car and Robert Lasardo's character who gets way more screen time than he gets in Hard to Kill is talking about the mouse problem <laughs> in his apartment yes and then there's just this whole scene that's just this conversation about 
like him having this mouse problem and then like a couple of the other goons saying like oh you should just shoot the mouse you know just kill the person below you you know that's that's fine you know like uh, mm. and him trying to explain the impracticality of going your around your house uh shooting the mouse and then the scene is ended by Richie just being like, shut the fuck up about the fucking mouse. <laughs> which, yeah, which you're waiting for the whole conversation. It's yeah. funny, the shooting through the floor, though, is funny because we, that's one thing we did uh, for, forget to mention about the bar scene just before this. Uh, there's a moment where Seagal fires around through the ceiling and Vinny says, like, what are you doing? Like, somebody could be up there. What do you, what do you think you're doing? And Seagal's like, nobody's up there. And Vinny's like, how do you know that? Did you check up there? And Seagal's like, no. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, yeah, that's pretty damn reckless, dude. Yeah, I, I kind of, again, that's just a great Seagal asshole moment where it's just, he's just, he's so confident that his opinion is correct. It is the actual truth that it, it doesn't matter. He can, he can fire through the ceiling because he knows no one's up there just through his sheer zen power yeah he is yeah i was gonna say there's like a buddha he he is buddha he's the asshole buddha of the world in that scene (laughs) i genuinely i now want there to be a movie steven seagal is (laughs) asshole buddha That would be, yeah, that would be amazing. He's got the figure for it these days. Yes, for sure he does. But back to shut the fuck up. About that fucking mouse. (laughs) I think the great, again, we should point out that William Forsyth is genuinely great in this movie. He's he's really uh, just the best, the best thing in it, basically. And his, you know, like his performance is so off the chain. He's so convincing as like this drugged up lunatic. And the absolute best thing about this scene in the car about this fucking mouse is like, you can just see him like boiling inside, like just through his eyes, like in the scene, he doesn't say anything, but you can just see from his posture from the way he's holding himself, from the, the just the anger building and building inside him. And it's it's really quite a fun scene. Yeah, pretty much every scene he's in is like that too, where you just, he's just so good. Like you said, he just, you're just waiting for him to explode. You're worried about, I'm worried about like every other actor with William Forsyth because I'm like, I think he might actually hit you or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I, they're like, um, you do... You do have that kind of fear, um, but uh, yeah, we kind of we kind of move away. We move away back onto Gino's uh, mission for revenge. Or oh, again, he has a brief detour uh, again because he had, he holds another meeting with uh, Don Vitrio. He meets up with uh, Don Vitrio at a restaurant. He then proceeds to insult him a bunch of times, and yeah, that's basically pretty much the end of that scene but then after that we get one of steven seagal's couple of attempts throughout the movie of serious acting yes and the uh moral of this monologue that he's about to give uh i don't know what it was supposed to be (laughs) no no it didn't seem to have a real point did it so basically he tells this very long-winded story about this guy who was known in the neighborhood as Uncle Pino, um, obviously some big 
mafia goon. Um, and then he uh, takes young Seagal uh, to the cinema, but basically beats up a guy, sticks a guy in his trunk of his car, and you know keeps him there. And young Seagal, he's supposed to be like nine years old in this story, starts worrying about this guy in the trunk that he's he's died, um, and uh, convinces Uncle Pino to to let the guy let the guy go. And he he opens the trunk up, and the guy just like shoots off and runs away. And yeah, he tells this in a very long-winded and convoluted fashion. And then basically suggests that this was the thing that made him want to be uh, yeah. a mafioso wise guy. But then he became a cop. And it's yeah. not explained in the monologue why the sudden change of heart. It's just like, well, no. God works in funny ways. Well, and there's another... Mo- I don't know if it was before this or after this, because there's another point where he's talking to a mafioso guy and he's talking about like, I don't think I'm better than you. I just like, I, w- I wanted this and I worked really hard for it. And it seems to be about him becoming a cop, but it's also very muddled. But yeah, I forgot. That's the point of the story is that he wants to be a wise guy. And the guy, I don't know who the guy is he's talking to. I don't remember his name, but he has a great line too. Cause Seagal says, yeah, I don't know. Like things, fate just happens. And that guy says something like, well, maybe God's a puppeteer and we're just on the other end of the strings. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, the story would make way more sense if he's talking about his origins of how he became a wise guy. But he's not. He's a cop. So, like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah, it just feels like what we, uh, what you mentioned about the script of, it feels like them trying to do some deep character development, but they don't have any idea how. So, (laughs) so this is what we get. Yeah. Because, like, it kind of, yeah. I mean, the thing that the, the thing that the monologue reminds me of, obviously, it's not written as well, and it's yeah, it's it's from, uh, you know, like this other monologue is obviously from a much better movie, but it's kind of like the the, the opening narration to Goodfellas, where Henry Hill's being uh, like, "I always wanted to be a gangster, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a gangster, but like he's not, he's a fucking cop." Yes, exactly. Well, yeah, it feels like the whole underlying thing they're trying to get across that never really works is like Richie and Gino, like were the you know coming from the same neighborhood and, and they're could kind have, of cut from the same cloth. Yeah, yeah, they could have been the same person, but they weren't. And but yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the conjoiner of like why that happened, why they chose those forking paths, is not explained at all. No. Well, and it's also not established that they were like friends, which I feel like would have been more poignant had they been like really close childhood friends that grew apart. Yeah, again, this is the sort of thing that might be in the two-hour version of this movie. I don't don't know because, yeah, there is a couple of references to it being like, oh, it's this guy from the neighborhood. I knew this guy from the neighborhood. And it is clearly established that Seagal had some sort of relationship with Richie's father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not that they were kind of close buddies. Like, I think there is a kind of small suggestion that, like, basically Bobby, Gino, and Richie all grew up together and were friends. But it's not... Yeah. Yeah. 
you you kind of have to read between the lines to kind of pick that up. Of there's just like tiny little clues that that might have been the case, but then at the same time, it also just feels like they were people who kind of knew each other in the neighborhood. They weren't necessarily friends. And if you're watching a Steven Seagal film, you're not someone that's interested in reading between the lines. You yeah. want you want something a little bit more concrete <laughs> but i do hope that the other 30 minutes on the cutting room floor from the director's cut is just more steven seagal serious monologues about, the neighbor, about his childhood yeah i mean we we get another one uh, not long after this um but we got a, a couple other things that we have to uh, talk about before we get there um, because our favorite thing to talk about, Steven Seagal being an asshole. Um, so, like, after this, uh, Steven Seagal is back on his path of vengeance. And his next stop is to visit Richie's sister, uh, played in an early role by Gina Gershon. And, yes. yeah, he basically interrogates her, well, basically bullies her like kind of tosses her about well, he doesn't toss her about in the way that he tosses the villains about but he basically grabs her by the arm and like kind of drags her about the place and um goes into her office uh throws papers about her office uh, goes through her drawers picks a gun up out her, her, her drawer that he's just he's just like yeah this is probably unregistered i can probably arrest you for this uh, and just um just yeah shouts at her threatens at her fucks up her shit and um as all the best police officers do and what you have to love is uh you said it before in the bar scene about Vinny. like we get the feeling that no one actually like richie does not seem like he's told anyone what he's doing he seems totally unhinged and they she seems like she genuinely doesn't know anything but she's going to jail yes she she is going she's going to jail and he, do, he doesn't even arrest her for like the thing he states in the first place he just makes up that she's like uh a prostitute just like ah you, you know like yeah you're a you know, i'm a arresting you for this and then he's and then he bullies somebody else to be like is she a sex worker yeah i've seen her on the streets for ten dollars for yeah. ten for dead dog. and then he like yeah mocks her for that of being like ah oh, you think you could get at least 15 you know like it's pretty ridiculous that whole bit is like i feel like you can't get away with this no <laughs> i do. feel like somebody would step in there it just yeah it does seem pretty damn ridiculous before that though there is one key plot point in that club before he bullies gina gershon one of the waitresses brings him a napkin with the name Roxanne written on it, which who's that? We we have to find out. Um, and there's also like another great little dialogue in there where he's talking to Gina Gershon and he asks who that waitress is, and she says who, and he says, the one with the nipples that could dial a phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was right. Oh, uh, you just can't beat that dialogue. That that again, you do wonder, is, is that a Seagal improvised line? Was that in the script i mean to be fair you know like the guy who wrote the script was the man who wrote roadhouse so it could be could be his you know line for all it, we know it could be either the but the other thing to me that made it funny was she is like dressed in a kind of play playboy bunny type outfit but you can't see anyone's nipples no that so is it very doesn't true. make a lot of sense like a lot of seagal lines there's not 
a lot of logic to it. But whatever, yeah. Yeah, so his monologue doesn't make sense. You know, but then again, lots of characters. It's like we established that that Sammy guy, his initial line, his initial asshole line didn't really make sense either. Um, so yeah, a lot of the lines in the movie don't necessarily add up, even though they kind of like, well, that sounds kind of cool or that kind of sounds kind of funny, but they're not necessarily got any real logic behind them. No, there's no logic, but it is all entertaining. Very entertaining. And uh, yeah, I like we get more of like, uh, you know, kind of everybody's an asshole in this movie. We get more of Richie being an asshole. He's hiding out uh, with a a wheelchair bound friend who owns a garage. (laughs) And he just immediately comes in and just a complete dickhead to him, just like spinning him around in the wheelchair, pushing him about, uh, kind of mocking him for not having working lower apparatus it's pretty yeah this is maybe the most gratuitous we have to show you how bad this villain is scene that's kind of what it feels like because there's no like reason for him to go there other than he says like we need to all get drugs and party that is true (laughs) it is like another one of like those classic how evil is this guy well let's let's show you um, I think, yeah, I think that and the the woman who he shoots early in the movie and, and yeah. you know, like, um, those are the kind of two scenes that do feel just, like, completely gratuitous of, like, they have no other purpose, kind of plot purpose, other than, like, this is how evil Richie is. Although, once again, I, I mean, the only saving grace probably is William Forsythe because he is so... Uh convincing that you're like okay i guess i buy that this guy is just is totally uh has no plan so i guess that's what he would be doing i don't know (laughs) yeah no that's 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 a fair point and yeah this seems to be the only part in the movie where the police know where richie is for some reason because there's a police raid on the garage um Mm. which i don't it is never fully explained whether this is just a police raid on the guards because like they're selling hot cars and it's just a it so happens that Richie's there or they've tracked Richie down because nobody mentions it like the raid isn't mentioned and as far like as far as I'm aware um, yeah no it just comes out of nowhere just kind of comes out the blue but it does does just make Richie look even worse because he assumes that possibly the wheelchair friend has ratted him out and as he's running out, just shoots him. <laughs> yeah, just to show just what an evil dickhead he is. Yeah, that and the moment where the woman gets shot at the beginning were pretty sh- shocking. <laughs> I was like, okay, Jesus, going to shoot that guy? All right. Yeah, I would say that the, they're probably the most shocking instance of violence in the movie and along with the the woman the the prostitute that gets punched in the face right at the start of the movie like those are bits of violence most of the violence in the movie is kind of over the top and very segalian and like you can kind of it just washes over you but those are the kind of three moments that you, you kind of wince a little yeah did we this isn't an important scene for the plot but did we already pass the point where uh, Seagal goes to buy dog food? Yeah, we did pass the point that uh, Seagal uh, goes to buy dog food. Again, that is that that just um, pops up. That's just after, I think that's just after like the 
the butcher shop fight not long after that he kind of uh, stops off um to buy some supplies for for the puppy um, okay which, yeah this, there's this. some it's only notable because there's great dialogue where seagal says he's like do you have any puppy dog food and the guy shows him it and seagal's like okay just so long it's like this isn't from new jersey right i don't want any radioactive stuff and the guy's like i don't blame you <laughs> you're just like and we're all just like that's the neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the humor of the neighborhood yeah 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 we should well like i'm glad we mentioned it now because like yeah that more bizarre dialogue yes uh, because as everybody knows um if you get any food from new jersey it's uh immediately <laughs> it's poisoned with radiation yeah <laughs> Although, actually, fast forwarding to where we are in the movie, uh, we get more puppy action because um, <laughs> Seagal stops off at his ex-wife. Uh, there's a reappearance of the puppy and uh, they talk about how cute the puppy is and um, will he be keeping the puppy and he doesn't know. Um, uh, so... <laughs> hooks yes. on that one um will he keep the puppy that's that's one we all really want to know uh, and then is... his ex-wife says does he have time for an espresso which apparently he does <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. uh, I, again again won't be straight from his path of vengeance but you know he's italian-american of course he has time to stop for an espresso you know because we're all just big stereotypes in this movie. That's how it works. This is, yeah, this is the point also where as an audience member, you may go, oh yeah, he has that puppy. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it keeps appearing and murdering people. I guess that puppy was just waiting in the car. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. It, like because he comes out the car and he was just like, oh, I forgot about this thing. So it suggests that he's been driving around all this time and um, just leaving it in the car and coming back. And then, yeah, <laughs> not a responsible puppy owner is Detective Gino Felino, apart from being general asshole and uh, poster boy for police brutality. <laughs> um, despite his animal lover status, eh, kind of ropey as a puppy owner. Here also we get another bit of great Seagal acting. He this really, monologue. really wants to act in this movie. And we get another monologue about his his father and um, the way he was raised and how he saw his father become obsolete. His job became uh, obsolete and... Um, he was uh, just very sad about that. He, you know, he used to have this car that he used to sell things off, but then people started buying things at the at the the supermarkets and all that, the cheaper variations and and all that. And he used to have this little bell <laughs> to bring people to the car, and that bell was the loneliest sound I've ever heard. Says the gal, is that oh. obviously obviously business is lost, and and then. They, you know, they told people that his father died of cancer, but he thinks he actually died of a broken heart. And those lines might sound touching, but coming out of Seagal's mouth, <laughs> fucking hilarious. It's so good. It's, yeah, this monologue oh. is amazing. And there's also, oh. yeah, that weird, like, under, that weird, like, subtext of, like, then people started buying disposable stuff. Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a weird like anti-capitalist corporate oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. sticking up for sticking up for the under <laughs> underdog and the, the mom and pop shops and, and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah which has nothing to do with anything 
yeah but um there 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 you go there you go some uh, some nice uh, anti-corporate uh, commentary there for you uh the great thing about this monologue as well apart from its natural hilarity is that it is so touching so moving yes. that his ex was well, not quite ex-wife calls off the divorce on the spot at that yeah. moment she realizes that detective detective gino felino the great detective that he is the great <laughs> man that he is the great animal lover that he is is a man that she still has to have in her life. So the divorce is off. Yes. And of course, at this moment, we as the audience members have been dying for this reconciliation. Richie for this Stubbs. character who has previously <laughs> yes. turned up in all of two scenes. <laughs> but of course, at that moment of almost satisfaction, Richie's thugs arrive to kill Gino. And that is true. And another great action scene where, like, yeah, one guy he sees through a window, he shoots that guy with a shotgun uh, through the window. He shoots up um, a bunch of other guys. He shoots uh, one guy kind of blindly round a corner, which is it's always fun to see that. Just um, he's so confident of his shot that he doesn't he doesn't have to look or anything. Just like. Uh, pop the gun around the corner and um, that's him that guy dead that's that's reminiscent of his marksmanship in uh marked for death marked for death that, that <laughs> hooker blindly yeah, yeah 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 he just comes around that corner he just shoots off the gun just not not looking at anything and uh, just firing off a million bullets randomly you know the the thing about this one in can kind of comparing and contrasting like he hits the mark first time in this one like he he just gets the guy he like looks blindly in the corner and shoots and he gets the guy whereas that hooker he shoots about 11 times and hits her twice well and the difference there being i guess that the hooker was in columbia and that might have thrown him off i don't know yeah <laughs> he's more accurate in the neighborhood <laughs> yes it all comes back to the neighborhood he also well you're gonna the last thug yes you can drops, take the last thug yes the great moment the last thug drops his weapon and says like oh you're not going to shoot an unarmed guy and Seagal says no of course not and proceeds to throw him through a window and off of a fire escape <laughs> Oh, it's it's so good. So after after that shootout, um, we kind of cut back to the club, and Vinny, who is probably the unluckiest character in the movie, because throughout the movie we've just seen him bullied. We've seen him bullied twice by mafia guys, and obviously once by Detective Gino, and now we see him being bullied by by Richie, just uh, pushed pushed about and um yeah generally being called a pussy by him for not being able to take out uh steven seagal uh, despite having loads of guys and um yeah that's uh so per, kind of i kind of feel sorry for Vinny. Vinny seems like a bit of an asshole but i feel like he, he maybe he doesn't deserve all of this i mean he, he really does get kind of manhandled and and broken throughout the movie yeah and he's i mean he's not as big a piece of shit as richie at least no no that's, that's true and actually one of the other things i did want to mention because just in terms of like the acting in this movie we didn't really mention that a, a couple of times um 
we see interactions with uh, Gino and uh, Richie's father, who is just credited yes. as Mr. Madano, um, who's played by Dominic Cinese, who most people will know for his role as Uncle Junior in The Sopranos, if you're a fan of that show. And he is the other kind of really good actor in this movie. And like, you actually really believe him when he's talking about his son and how sad he is about how off the rails Richie has gone and how much he breaks his heart that like is watching his son become a monster, you know, like pretty much most other people in this movie, when they try to be heartrending or try to give emotion, you, you don't really buy it, but like he is one of the few actors. I mean, basically William Forsyth, Jerry Obert and, and him are the ones who, who give actual proper decent good acting performances yeah i would agree uh and he also he feels particularly like the only person though that like that stuff where he's talking about his son and he's genuinely sad does feel like the only uh realistic stuff and the stuff that like okay that's probably what the script was gonna that's probably what the movie would have been like if it really was gonna be this mean streets kind of a thing yeah because pretty much everything else feels relatively weightless but when he's delivering his dialogue and he's talking about how crestfallen he is and how he's, you know, he's worked hard all his life and, you know, seeing his son come to this and kind of knowing that the world would be better off without his son, you actually are properly drawn into that and believe that. And it is given a kind of real emotional weight that pretty much nothing else in the movie is. Yeah. And just as you're feeling feelings, it's time to move on to more action. <laughs> <laughs> more, more action. That's what we're go we're going to get. Yeah, because we we get like a a shootout in the club between Richie's guys and some mob guys. Like uh, we get some more classic uh, the biker guy being a real dickhead to everyone. <laughs> yeah he hasn't learned a goddamn thing no he's still, he's still bloody and missing teeth and he's still like acting like he's tough <laughs> that's uh, what i love about this character he's just learned no lessons at all yeah like you say he's still like i mean he's not cleaned himself up from earlier he's still bleeding out the mouth uh carrying his broken teeth around and yeah still being a complete dickhead to everybody that talks to him including mafia guys who could yeah easily wipe him out you know you would assume but uh yeah yeah he clearly has this just the sort of confidence he has that i've never never had you know if i had an ounce of this man's confidence <laughs> then <laughs> i'd probably be going further in life <laughs> yes well and it, it makes me wonder why that guy isn't like best friends with richie because they're both on the same planet <laughs> of yes. just craziness. Oh dear! And then, um, yeah, I think I think it's kind of at, at this point we, you know, we've Richie um, does a bit more in, in investigating. We get a scene with um, him and the waitress uh, Terry, who'd earlier passed him that that little thing with uh, with Roxanne written on it and we kind of discover 
what you know what's going on we've we've you know we've uh we discovered the things with the with the picture uh so the picture shows uh bobby basically having sex with uh richie's girlfriend we we think it's his girlfriend yeah. and yeah they're like uh, that seems to have been richie's motive for killing him and um well, for killing this this girlfriend, uh, uh, Roxanne. And those Polaroids are kind of hilarious looking to me. I don't know, just them posing. Yeah, it looks like in a super it. staged. Like they've they they've had. Yeah, they were like, oh, we're going to have sex in this style just for this <laughs> photo. You know, like it really does look like a kind of posed for. And yeah, it's, it's it's weird. It's yeah, the 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 yeah, the staging of the those uh, Polaroids is kind of hilarious. And apparently, that uh, Roxanne is Julie Strain, who was some like Playboy model or something like something like that. All right, okay. So fun fact: she doesn't get any lines. <laughs> no, 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 she does not get any lines. She's basically just naked in those pictures. And then we find her dead and naked in a bed. <laughs> and yeah, that that's it. But, you know, Gino being the respectful guy that he is, like, covers her up. Hey, he's classy. He, yeah, he's he's a classy, classy man. And yeah. and not only that, he's also, like, a, an expert on decomposition. Because this is where we get him mentioning that her bo- by the state of her body's rigor mortis... She must have died like 24 hours ago. And this is where we're reminded that this is all one night. <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> that is true. Yes, I mean, obviously, uh, Gino, uh, animal lover, master martial artist, master linguist, uh, CSI, you, you know, he can do, he can do anything. Animal lover, he, you know, he's, he's amazing. He, he, is he a- can pull off a beret. He can pull off a beret, a beret and cut off shirt combo. I mean, not many, not many people on the planet could do the same. No, I was going to mention that outfit reminds me of the guardian angels. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're like a, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. In New York that like civilian sort of uh, vigilante almost kind of group. Yes, that's right. I wonder if they were inspired by this film. I don't, or if he was inspired by them. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird one. Uh, but yeah, I am vaguely aware. I am vaguely aware that I can picture them in in my head. Yes. So yeah, that is a, that's kind of a weird coincidence. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure at, at all. Um, further research maybe needed on that. You know, I don't know if we can. We can yeah, find maybe. That out. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode on berets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll do. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think we could definitely do a bo- bonus episode on Steven Seagal's fashion choices throughout the ages, um, or maybe you know, obviously sticking to our remit just throughout the nineties. But that is still. Um, we still got a lot to dig into right there. That would be amazing. Yeah, but we've <laughs> got to get back to this. Yeah, uh, we got to. We got to get back to this movie. We're real near the end, guys. We're real near the end. Um, so basically. Uh, Richie goes no wait um, so Gino uh, goes to visit Bobby's wife and then it is implied that it was Bobby 
his wife who sent the picture to Richie, um, the incriminating picture that got her husband killed. Yeah, which seems like a pretty convoluted plot we've got going here. It is. I mean, for you know, a relatively straightforward mission of vengeance film. Yeah, there's a, a bunch of kind of convoluted subplots here that kind of really muddy things up a little. But and and yeah, it's not again, it's one of the many things in this movie where it's not clearly stated, it's implied, and, and you kind of pick up on the conversation that we think that's what happened she denies it and then it seems like she admits it at the end of the scene but maybe not yeah and and but like it kind of it also doesn't matter that much why he killed him either because like he killed his partner (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) that's what we care about that's uh, that's a yeah that's a very fair point that's a very fair point so um yeah, Richie's still on, on the warpath. He goes back to Juliana Margulis's place. Um, her character is called Rika, by the way. I, I should have mentioned that earlier. And um, he wants to party. He's still wanting to party. He still wants to do more drugs. He orders hookers to be phoned up um, for <laughs> his men because... You know, he 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 wants to be a good employer. Um, you know, like that's yeah. <laughs> he, he wants, wants to. Re- be... He's got to reward uh, Robert Lasorda, who is still in the movie, right? At this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's still he's still there. He's still in the movie. He survived right till near, very near the end of the movie. And in you know when we cut back to when the party is swinging. Um, we see a bunch of other goons have appeared and eagle-eyed horror fans might notice that one of those goons is none other than Kane Hodder. I did not notice that. Yeah, he is. It, like when Seagal uh, bursts in and starts shooting people, um, he's the second guy that he shotguns to death. Well, that's good because, yeah. It would have been better if Kane Hodder was the final villain. Yeah, that would have been cool. Um, but no, um, he's just in it for like two seconds. Basically, you see him sitting on a couch in when everybody's having a party. And then like, yeah, when Steven Seagal bursts through the door, he like uh, jumps up to, to shoot him and like he gets uh, shotgunned to death by, by Seagal. And then that's him. So he really is like a blink and you miss it role he is listed in the credits as one of the stuntmen in the films i don't know if he did more that way um in terms of stunts but uh yes um that's and this is the the first time gino uses the shotgun right i only bring that up because in the like right after the the, um no there's a scene the scene where they attack his um his wife's ex well his uh reconciled wife's apartment like he shoots oh like yeah he's yeah. got a shot he's got the shotgun there okay um because he shoots the guy shoots that first guy out the window um with a shotgun yeah you're right um so he, he has that shotgun in the, in that scene don't know like shotgun that previously hadn't appeared so i don't know where he picked it up from but yeah well just he- lying around he had it when he first uh, saw Jerry Orbach. Because whenever oh, his partner right. gets killed, yeah, he's got that bit where he's like, "Let me, 
let me just give me an unmarked car and I'll take the shotgun and I'll do it myself. <laughs> take care of this my way. <laughs> that, that is, that is right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. So yeah, he starts. And um, we should also mention, I'm not sure if this is the Kane Hodder character, but a character off screen, which might be the Kane Hodder character, uh, shoots Steven Seagal in the stomach yes. to literally no effect. But it, it barely phases him. <laughs> this is the climax, though. So we've got to up the stakes. We, we, do, we do indeed. But I mean, it really doesn't slow him down at all. Uh, but... Then again, you know what? This is a totally ridiculous um, action movie, and we get some more great ridiculous action, and that's really all we want from this film. So we basically Richie, in very quick order, takes out pretty much all of uh, like uh, all of Richie's men, and um, the <laughs> the biker guy, the biker guy dies in the most hilarious fashion. Uh, because he is uh, pulled through this um, this this thing with all these kind of wooden slats, and then he go like the baker guy basically goes to fight Gino, and then Gino kicks him in the st- like sternum so hard that blood comes out his mouth, and then it's implied that he's dead after that. <laughs> well, because he doesn't move and he doesn't reappear, so we're assuming he's died by the sheer power of Seagal's boot. It makes sense, and it's kind of how he what he deserved. <laughs> yeah, that, that guy was an asshole. Fuck that guy. <laughs> and then, yeah, like in all of Seagal's films, uh, the final showdown is heavily freighted in in Seagal's favor. Um, oh. You know, like. I think, I mean, last time out uh, in Mark for Death, uh, Screwface at least got a couple of shots in and managed to bash his head in a couple of times, uh, got a minor upper hand for all of two seconds, but he did he did manage to get the upper hand. Uh, but this is a completely one-sided fight. Um, Richie comes out a bathroom being like, I'm out of bullets, you know, like, uh, you can't, you can't shoot me. And then basically Seagal does the exact same thing he did in the bar. He takes his, the, the clip out of his gun and he's like, I, you know, I don't need this and just starts absolutely demolishing Richie, just throwing him around. He throws him around the bedroom then he throws him around the living room. Williams Forsyth very, very briefly gets the, the upper hand for less than two seconds as he like sticks a finger in the bullet yes. hole in Seagal's stomach. And that barely phases him. That barely phases him. He just takes his hand right out and then he just goes right back to just throwing him around the living room. You know, just putting him into bookcases and various uh, furniture and you basically everything that Richie picks up is then turned against him. He's like, he's he picks up a table leg, the table leg's taken off him and he's swatted in the head. He crawls up to a cooker and he picks up a frying pan. He's then strangled and hit <laughs> with the same frying pan. Um, and yeah, and then after that, and, and Richie by this stage is just drenched in blood after being thrown around the bedroom, the kitchen, 
and the kitchen being thrown into all of the furniture um, and then having this humiliation of being twatted in the head with a table leg and a frying pan. Then he gets punched in the face a couple of times and then the final indignity, he crawls to try and get a corkscrew and that yes. corkscrew is immediately implanted in his forehead. Yes. It's like probably the weakest part of the movie in a way, just because William Forsyth has no chance. And he just, this is when you really notice, if you hadn't noticed that Richie is a bit overweight (laughs) (laughs) and he shouldn't be so enthusiastic about fighting hand to hand. That is, that is true. I love that um, both in the the bedroom and in the, the, I think it's in the, when he gets to the kitchen, there's a couple of times Steven Seagal like backs off and does like a little kind of martial arty pose before like just stomping a mud hole in his ass. <laughs> as if, yeah, as if uh, Forsyth has some kind of chance where he's going to put up a fight, but no. That is true. I mean, like they could have, they could have done something. I mean, it's like, it's not like William Forsyth is a small guy. He's yeah. of a relatively similar height. They're, I mean, Seagal's about 6'5". Uh, William Forsyth must be like similar kind of maybe 6'4 or something. Like, we always maybe slightly shorter than them. So maybe like 6'3, six, 6'4. Six, and, you know, like, even though he is overweight, it kind of gives him this kind of imposing looking figure. And they could have made him like some sort of like, you know, just kind of low down, dirty kind of bare knuckle boxer type, you know, like uh, just rough and ready, you know, mm-hmm. against the kind of more refined martial arts or, or s- something. But obviously Seagal's ego won't let, you know that happen of like his opponent being <laughs> yeah it's not happening in any way um a, a threat um you know like and it's it's funny because like Screwface is a scrawnier guy but like he did pose more of a threat than Richie ends up posing yeah well and Richie is probably the craziest villain we've had thus far too like seemingly maybe the most dangerous person because he has no plan he has no plan or anything <laughs> Yeah, that that is thing. It's true. It's one of the things that makes him a more unusual villain. There is no real purpose to all of this. There is no thought behind um, what will happen. There's no scheming. There's just he wanted to kill this guy. He wanted to kill his ex girlfriend for them, you know. And he wanted to do drugs, <laughs> yeah. fuck around, and kill people. And that's. That's all he wanted to do. He should, yeah, should have had a better climax. But I do love right after this when. Uh, or do you want that, to take the postscript? Yes. So <laughs> okay. William Forsyth has just been foreheaded to the face with a corkscrew and is quite dead. And this mafioso shows up who was there for one of Steven's monologues. Um, and Steven Seagal takes his gun and just shoots Richie about five or six more times just to make sure he's dead. And implied to like give the mafioso guy the credit for killing him or something. Um, yes. Yeah. Which is just a great moment. Great extreme overkill. Um, Absolutely. And, then, and then we think we're pretty much done. And oh, but 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 wait, Kyle, baby. You know, <laughs> like um, the audience at home is definitely wondering what's what's happened with the what's happened with the puppy. Like, yes. how can we 
how can we go home happy without knowing how this uh, puppy subplot has, you know, how it'll all be tied up? Well, we're going to find out. We That wasn't just a throwaway scene. <laughs> we are at Coney Island, I think, and Gino and his wife are together. They're going to get a chili cheese dog or something. Um, and we see the uh, bumper sticker on this car in like three quick <laughs> rapid close-ups. Um, and it's the guy who threw the dog out. And so, of course, Gino has to go ask him if he threw the dog out. And, of course, this guy must be, like, related to the, the biker guy because he's a total asshole. He says, I'm going to, you know, throw you out of the car in a garbage bag too, Steven Seagal. But he's not. He's going to get roundly just kicked in the balls. And then this little dog is going to run over and pee on the guy's face. And then we walk into the sunset. Yeah. And that's... And that's it. Uh, like Stephen Seagal finishes with a line about like, uh, looks like it'll be a police dog yet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and and that's how the movie ends. And then, well, and then the credits are like a highlight reel of the movie. <laughs> yes, but funnily weird. enough, uh, weirdly, only a highlight reel of the movie up until the bar brawl scene where he, he beats the guys up with the, the pool ball and all that. And then the famous, you know, have any of you guys seen Richie? After the whole, you know, he's pretty much proved that the, the whole bar has not uh, seen him, <laughs> but he's still shouting about it as, uh, as, he's heading out, as he's heading out the bar. Um, oh, we should have mentioned as well, as he killed Richie, he goes, that's for Bobby, which seems like oh, yes. pretty perfunctory, given that it's... You know, like he's, you know, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty, you know, like he doesn't, yeah. he really doesn't need to add that. Everybody knows it. Rich, boy. <laughs> it's like, the whole movie. It's that's what the whole movie was based on. That you're getting revenge for your partner. You do not need to state to the audience that that is for Bobby. It is another great Seagal acting moment, though, because he is like, I don't know what he's trying to do, but he's not succeeding. But it is a weird blind delivery. <laughs> That, that is very true. And then, yep, it's end credit roll with the highlights and uh, we get a kind of blues rock song called Don't Stand In My Way that was, a, once again, like the end credit song in Mark for Death, co-written by Steven Seagal. This time, uh, it was sung by Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers Band. Wow. And what? yeah, so once again, you know, we think we're out of the movie and everything's over, but Steven Seagal... Uh, is going to let us know he's still a man of many talents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and um, so, yes, we get another kind of parade of uh, Seagal's ego. And, um, yeah, we get a, a rock and blues rock uh, tune to finish. So, yeah, usually at this point in the episode, we, we do uh, best and worst. I don't know. I'll let you go first, Kyle. I'm not sure what my, my worst is going to be because, boy, this movie's a fun time. Yeah, I don't know what's bad about it. I mean, what is even the best? There's so many good things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously the bar scene is like the best, but you yeah. know what? Rewatching it, the the new best is definitely the freeze frame when he's introed. Freeze frame, Steven Seagal after he's thrown that guy through the windshield is pretty great. But that is pretty fucking awesome. Like, yeah, just the the way the movie opens uh, with that. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love that. 
Um, and it's the way, yeah, like you say, it's the way it freeze frames and then in big, bold, grey lettering, you get Steven Seagal emblazed across the screen. And then the title card comes down with a clank out for justice. It's great. It's, it's so damn good. I mean, I think we'll see when when we get deeper into this podcast, but I'm like, that might be one of the best action movie intros there is. Thinking on, you know, it really stands out anyway. Yeah, it really does. It really does. It, it might be, it might get the award for uh, best action movie title card. Yes. When we do awards for this stuff. <laughs> yeah, when we do awards, we get the awards um, for, for sure. Um, yeah, like you, I'm struggling to think of like a thing I really hate about this movie. Um, th- there's maybe, I don't know, like that, that opening scene, like the violence seems more ugly than the rest of the movie. Um, it was maybe a little bit unnecessary. Uh, I just felt a little bit uncomfortable in that in that scene. But yeah, um, so maybe that. But there's yeah. So, yeah, there's so much great stuff, and I re- you know like all the big fights in this movie, I think are really well done. The barroom ball fight is obviously the absolutely the best fight of Steven Seagal's uh, career and maybe one of the best fight scenes in the 90s and uh, the butcher shop scenes really fun uh, particularly that little moment uh, where he takes the meat cleaver <laughs> one guy's leg to implant it in another guy's hand um yeah that that was great and the like the shootouts there's a couple of good shootouts the one at his uh, wife's apartment and the the club shootouts, the shootout at the club is pretty decent as well. And yeah, it also has like a solid car chase, kind of all the action beats that you want from an action movie. And it's got all the kind of bizarre Segalian touches that, for, that are a joy <laughs> for any Segal yes. fan. <laughs> oh. So yeah, that's that's kind of our... That's kind of a wrap up on uh, on Out for Justice. Uh, we we definitely recommend that you check this one out. And um, if you've enjoyed listening to us talk about Out for Justice, be sure to join us next time when we will talk about Segal's biggest hit, Under Siege. And also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher. Apple Podcasts, basically wherever you get your podcast from, check us out. Give us a five star review. It you know really helps with the old algorithm bullshit. But until next time, uh, that's that's all for me, Scott. And that's, yeah, and it's been a pleasure. My my co-host uh, Kyle, the the Mason Storm of the podcast. <laughs> and remember, folks, just like Segal would say, until next time, keep a superior attitude superior state of mind.